Lord, teach thy people to love thy house, the best of all dwellings, thy scriptures, best of all books, thy sacraments, best of all gifts, the communion of saints, the best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God, blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are finishing up our study of the book of James today. So this is a short book, only five chapters. We said that it's a very practical book, and we'll come back and take a look at just how practical the teaching in this epistle really is. But today we want to finish out James chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them to James chapter 5. We started looking at the first part of this chapter last week, where James talks about the dangers, the seduction of worldly goods. He issues a warning to the wealthy, to the rich, to the propertied. He warns them about putting their trust in these things that are fleeting, these things that are going to disappear, these things that do not last. He also warns them about putting their trust in their riches to such a degree that they take advantage of others. But now he's going to go on and talk about those who are actually being taken advantage of. So that we understand that these two sections go together, we want to go ahead and just read through the entire chapter, chapter 5. It's not really that long at all. It's only 20 verses, so it shouldn't take us but a minute or two. But let's go ahead and read through James chapter 5, and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at what the author has to say. So James writes, James chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we said that at the beginning of this chapter, James is talking really about the plight of the overprivileged. 
We all hear about the plight of the underprivileged, those who are disadvantaged, uh, but the New Testament frequently speaks of the plight of the overprivileged. Jesus himself makes it very clear that wealth, riches, possessions, these things are not necessarily sinful, but they are liabilities. And one of the reasons that they are liabilities is because we place our trust in these things and we forget that ultimately everything we have, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. And so James begins this fifth chapter by warning the rich, the wealthy. In particular, he warns them not to take advantage of those less fortunate. He says this, You have laid up treasure in the last days, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. That's often the way it is, isn't it? The rich get richer, and they do that oftentimes at the hurt or the harm of those who work for them. And so James is warning the rich against this. Now, we said that James has talked about money and possessions earlier in this book. When he gets to the fifth chapter, he's not talking about Christians. This is a warning to an unbelieving world at this point. Now, when he talks about riches earlier, he's talking about Christians and their right use of wealth and possessions. But here, in chapter 5, he's warning those on the outside of the church who are taking advantage of others. But when you get to verse 7, he begins to address those who are members of the church who are the ones who are being taken advantage of. Look at how he puts it. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's that word brother that is the tip-off that tells us that he is referring here to believers. Now, if you put this in its historical context, this begins to make perfect sense. We said that James was the brother of our Lord. James eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And one of the things that we know about the church in Jerusalem was that it was a poor and afflicted church. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul, when he was traveling about the Gentile world, was collecting what was known as the Jerusalem Fund. We've talked about that before when we studied the book of Acts. One of the things that Paul wanted to do was to help the poor and afflicted who were believers in Jerusalem. When Paul took the gospel to the unbelieving Gentile world, there was no real competition. There were these other gods, there were these other pagan deities, that is true, but they weren't seen as, or Paul wasn't seen as necessarily corrupting an already existing religion. And, and what's more, the Greeks in the first century, they could tolerate a multiplicity of deities. This was just one more God that was being proclaimed. But in Judaism, there was only one God. One of the reasons why Paul, prior to his conversion, was so intent on stamping out the church is because he thought that the early believers were corrupt, corrupting the Jewish faith. They were, they were advocating for something that was contrary to the teaching of the law and the prophets. Now, he would eventually get corrected on that point on the road to Damascus. When Jesus would appear to him and cry out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replies, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, that was an eye-opening experience, no pun intended for the Apostle Paul, because he thought that he had actually been serving God, and he suddenly discovers that the God that he had been serving, he thought that he was serving, he was actually persecuting. So that was an eye-opening experience for Paul. But as a Jew, he thought that he was doing his duty in stamping out Christianity. Well, that was the situation for the church in Jerusalem. They're there at the heart, the epicenter of the Jewish faith. And so the early believers were often viewed as troublemakers. And they were abused, they were persecuted, and they were poor. And so Paul was collecting this fund from all of the Gentile churches that was designed to be brought to Jerusalem, laid at the feet of James and others who were the leaders of that church in order to alleviate the suffering. So when James here in his own epistle is talking about those who are being afflicted, he knows this firsthand. He knows who the rich and the wealthy are, the Sadducees, for example, who are out there persecuting the believers. So in the first part of the, first part of the chapter, the first six verses, 
He is condemning those who are rich, who are unbelievers, who are taking advantage of the poor. But in verses 7 and following, he's referring to those who are poor, but who are believers, who are the afflicted. Now, you can warn the rich not to take advantage of others. But you also realize they're probably going to do it anyway. And the reason they're going to do it anyway is because they don't control their riches, their riches control them. That's why their riches were such a liability. And so even if you warn them, James was fully aware of the fact that they were still, many of them, going to afflict those who were less advantaged. So what he does in verses 7 and following is he addresses those who are the afflicted and he talks to them about how they should react to this. He's warned the rich, but if the rich fail to listen to him, what are the poor to do? How are they to handle the situation? Well, look at what he says. It's in verse 7. He says, be patient. Be patient. How many of you possess the gift of patience? Anybody? Oh, you do? Really? I'll be honest with you, patience is the one virtue that I am reluctant to pray for. Because I know God's recipe for getting it. It's normally affliction. It's normally suffering. That's why James is saying being patient, because these people were afflicted. They were suffering people. That's how we learn patience, folks. What's that little poem, little doggerel that says, patience is a virtue. Seize it while you can. It's rarely found in women. It's never found in man. And it's true, isn't it? Patience is something that we all struggle with. And yet, here is James saying, when you're afflicted, when you're persecuted, when there are those out there who are taking advantage of you, you are to be patient. Now, we Americans don't like that. Patience seems to imply that we just have to sit around, grin and bear it, do our best to sort of push through. But that's not what James is saying at all. There are two things about patience that James is saying. He says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, he says you are to be patient because you know that ultimately God is going to set things right. You don't have to worry about setting things right because you have one who is going to vindicate you. That should be the Christian response in the midst of persecution and affliction. The response of the early believers was not to fight back, but to remain patient, trusting in who? Trusting in God. Of course, this only makes sense if you really believe that this world is not all there is. But it makes perfect sense if you realize that this world is not all there is and that there is a sovereign Lord of the universe who is determined to set things right, who is the God of justice. And in His time, and by the way, God's timing is always perfect, in His time, He will vindicate. So our job is to wait on the Lord. I like the way that James puts this here. He says, be patient, establish your hearts. That is to say, set down a foundation for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the first thing we are to do when we are afflicted. We are to be patient, but we are to be patient knowing that ultimately the God we serve is a God who is determined to set this broken and fallen world right. He is a God of mercy and he is a God of forgiveness, but we must never forget that he is also the judge of the living and the dead. So that's the first thing James says the afflicted are to do. They are to be patient. They are to wait 
on the Lord. It's not just a matter of grinning and bearing it. It's not just a matter of being patient in the hopes that perhaps the rich will begin to treat you a little bit better. James knows very well that's not going to happen. What you're supposed to do is wait on the Lord. Now, this is where faith comes in, because that's what faith really is. If you think about it, faith, the Greek word is pistis. It means trust. It means you're trusting in the Lord to be your vindicator. If you think about it, the supreme example of someone trusting in the Lord to be his vindicator is Jesus himself. Jesus, who throughout his ministry was oppressed and hated and persecuted and right up to the very end, hounded. And there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, praying for the Lord's deliverance, but then he goes on to say, but if it's not your will that I be delivered from this, then your will be done. Now what Jesus has to do at that point is he has to trust that God is going to vindicate him. He can't vindicate himself at that point. He has to trust that God will vindicate him. And of course, three days later, that's exactly what God did. God vindicated him. Well, we are to follow the example of Jesus and do the same thing. So as I said, this only makes sense if you realize that there is, in fact, an afterlife. Now, here's the other thing that we have to do. We have to have patience. We have to wait on the Lord for our vindication. But that waiting on the Lord is not necessarily a passive thing. It's not necessarily a passive thing. Look at verse 11. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I think when we think of patience, as I said, we think of somebody who is passive. But being steadfast, that's not passive, that's active. When somebody says, be steadfast, what does that imply? It means standing your ground. That's exactly what it means. So yes, you are to be patient, waiting for the Lord, but at the same time, the active part of this is to hold your ground. No retreat. No recoil. You hold your ground ground. Now he goes on to give us some examples of people who did that. And who does he mention? Well, he mentions the prophets. And of course they did. They held their ground. It's interesting who he mentions here. He mentions Elijah. Now that's pretty interesting that he should mention Elijah. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, you remember that it was Elijah who confronted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, didn't he? He was patient. If you remember that story about Elijah on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, they set up this competition between the, the, the prophets of Baal and Elijah, between the pagan gods and the God of Israel. And the story goes that they each build a temple. And the prophets of Baal had the opportunity to march around the altar and they, they begin to cry out to their God in the hopes that he might bring down fire and consume the sacrifice. And they did this for hours and they cut themselves and they cried out and nothing happened. And then Elijah comes. And Elijah says, all right, it's my turn, but I want you to douse the wood with water. I want it to be absolutely drenched. I want you to put more water on there, put more water on there, until we're told the water came down, running off the altar and into the trench and filled it. Now we all know that wet wood does not ignite. So Elijah's doing what? He's being patient. He's trusting in the Lord to vindicate him. And he cries out to the Lord, and you know the story. Fire comes down from heaven, and it consumes the sacrifice, and it licks up the water, laps it up. So everything is consumed. And what was that? That was God vindicating Elijah. It's not Elijah vindicating himself. It's God vindicating Elijah. But the important thing to recognize here is that Elijah didn't back down. He didn't fight back. He simply trusted in the Lord, but he stood his ground. And that's what you and I are called to do. We're not to lose heart. We're not to become discouraged as we wait for the Lord. 
we are to hold our ground. No surrender. There is a story that's told of a farmer out in the Midwest. This actually was published in a newspaper in the 1930s. This was a farmer who was living in a small community in the Midwest. Uh, Bill Christian, are you here? Let's say it was Wisconsin, just because you're from Wisconsin. And this farmer's property ran right up to the property of the church. And uh, he was an unbeliever in a small community where there was a strong Christian presence. And um, he always felt that he was the odd man out. But he also felt that he was sort of the liberated man. And he would farm his land seven days a week. Now, on the Sabbath, in that little community in Wisconsin in the 1930s, you didn't work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Sunday, and you didn't work on the Sabbath. That was a day of rest. You know, there was a time, how many of you remember a time, when businesses did not open on Sunday? And I'm not just talking about Chick-fil-A. <laughs> businesses did not open on Sunday. You certainly didn't sell liquor on Sunday. Why? Because this was the Lord's day. Well, in this little community, everybody went to church. Except for this man who continued to plow his fields right out in front of the church, doing all of his work, plowing his fields, and when the harvest came, guess what? He had a bumper crop. Surprise ending, huh? You weren't expecting that. No, he had a bumper crop. He had a tremendous crop. It was better than all of his neighbors. And he wrote a little letter to the editor of the newspaper, basically criticizing all of the other members of the community and saying, this is what happens when you work hard and you don't take a day of rest and you work hard every single day of the week. That's good American philosophy, isn't it? You have to work at it, work at it, work at it. I have some friends from England, and I said, when you think of Americans, what do you think of? And they said, oh, well, that's easy. Work, 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 die. <laughs> and that's often the way it is for Americans, isn't it? And we work hard, why? Because we want to gain much, and if we gain much, then we can live the good life, and the good life is what? Being able to do whatever we want. Well, that's exactly what this farmer thought. And he worked hard every single day. And when he had the bumper crop, he thought this was the opportunity to teach the rest of the community a lesson. And so he wrote this letter to the editor in which he spells out what he had done and how foolish the rest had been. The editor of this small town newspaper in Wisconsin published the entire letter in full, but then wrote one little editorial comment at the end. The Lord does not settle his accounts in October. Well, that's what James is saying here. The Lord doesn't always settle his accounts when we think he should, but the message is that he will ultimately settle his accounts. And our job, as we wait, is to be patient, to rely on him, to trust in him that one day he will vindicate us. Stand firm. The ultimate example that he gives us here is the example of Job. If you've never read the book of Job, you ought to. It's probably the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. But you know the story of Job. Job was a righteous man, and he got caught in the midst of this cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There is no one like him in all the earth. He is a righteous man. He does no evil. And Satan says to him, oh, yes, I've seen him, and you are right, he's a righteous man, but you know why he's righteous, he's righteous because you protect him. But if you were allowing him to be afflicted, if you were just to let down that fence that you put around him and allow him to suffer a little bit, oh, he would curse you to your face. And so God says to Satan, well, go ahead and try. And you know the story you read the book of Job, all of these terrible things happen to Job as a consequence. I mean, terrible things. He loses his family. He loses his livestock. He'd been a wealthy, propertyed man. He loses everything. Everything is taken away from him. And then he has these friends, so-called friends, 
who come up to him. Do you ever have these people when things are going tough in your life, when things are not going the way you would hope, things are going south, these are the people that come up to you and they've got advice as to how you can fix yourself. How many of you have had friends like that? My advice to you is get new friends. But this is what Job's friends do to him. They come up to him and they've got all kinds of advice. Well, your problem is this, Job. You must have done something that upset the Lord. And of course, that was not the case. Job knew he had done nothing wrong. Even Job's wife came up to him. Who would want a spouse like this? And she says, your friends are right. I don't know what it is you've done, but you've done something. Why don't you, you'd be better if you were dead. You might as well curse God and die. So this is the situation you see. All of these people giving Job all of this bit of advice, but Job knew that he hadn't done it. And he did what? He waited patiently. Waiting patiently. He waited patiently for the Lord. He waited for the Lord to ultimately vindicate him. And if you read the book of Job, and you've heard of the patience of Job, that is ultimately what the Lord did. The Lord vindicated Job. But part of what Job had to do in the midst of that patience was he had to stand his ground against his friends, against his family members, against all of those who would encourage him to do what he knew in his spirit was just not right. And when we are afflicted, we are called upon to do precisely the same thing, to be patient. Here's something else you can do, though, that is active. You can pray. While you're waiting for the Lord, and while you're standing your ground against all of the naysayers, James goes on to say you can pray hard. Look at what he says in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. Or as one of the other translations put it, the prayer of the righteous man availeth much. I've said to you many times before, suffering is inevitable in this life. Everybody suffers. The rich suffer, the poor suffer, the black suffer, the white suffer, men suffer, women suffer, we all suffer. You've heard me say this many times before, but you'll hear me say it many times again because we need to understand it. That the storms of life are going to come. Every single one of us is in one of three places. You're either heading into a storm, you're in a storm, or you just come out of a storm. But the storms of life cannot be avoided. And when the storm erupts, what can you do? Aside from being patient, aside from standing your ground, James says you can pray. It's the greatest privilege we have, my friends, to go into the throne room, into the presence of the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, when we begin to talk about prayer, this is... A simple message in one respect, but in another sense, it is a very complicated subject. Many people know that they should pray, but they find prayer difficult. How many of you find prayer to be difficult, if you're honest with yourself? I mean, we ask these kinds of questions. What is prayer really designed to do? When we pray, is prayer designed to change God, or is prayer designed to change us? I mean, which, which one is it? Can we actually change God's mind by our prayers? The prayer of the righteous man availeth much. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? That's what the Bible says. Pray without ceasing. Well, what does that mean? How should I pray? Who should pray? To whom should we pray? These are the kinds of questions that we ask so James tells us that we should pray, but we find prayer difficult. Now, this is an eminently practical book, so what I want to do here in the final moments as we round out our study of James 
So I want to give you some helpful hints for praying. Because again, the storms are going to erupt in your life. Difficulty is going to come. Things are going to surprise you. They're not going to surprise God, but there will be things that will surprise you in your life. Here's some helpful hints when it comes to praying. Because really, this is the most important thing that you and I can do. This is the most important thing that you and I can do. But when we pray, you need to understand a couple of things. First of all, prayer is designed to be a conversation with the Almighty. The best illustration that I know of for a picture of prayer comes from the Old Testament, and it's from the book of Esther. That's probably not a book that most people read. But it is a wonderful book. Esther was a queen. She was the queen in a pagan empire, actually, but she was a Jewess. She was Jewish. And um, she was a woman who interceded on behalf of her people. Uh, to make a long story short, a law had been passed in that land that said that everybody had to bow down and basically honor the king. Well, that was something that Jews could not do. And there was a conspiracy, basically, to wipe out the Jews in that kingdom. They wanted to get rid of all the Jews, and they knew that this was a way to do it. And so Esther, who was a Jew, knew that she was the only one who could ultimately deliver her people. And she could do that because she had a privileged relationship with the king. She was the queen. But here was the problem. Nobody was permitted to go into the king's presence without being summoned. It was punishable by death. Now, remember that in that day, kings had many wives. Kings were not going to be interrupted. It was the law of the Medes and the Persians, and it could not be revoked. But one of Esther's relatives came to her and said, the situation is desperate. You're going to have to risk your life. You're going to have to risk your privileged relationship with the king. And so the story goes that Esther dressed herself out in her finest raiments. She made herself look as comely and as beautiful as possible. And she went boldly into the presence of the king. And as the doors flew open, everybody gasped. Who should interrupt the king when he's meeting with his counselors? It was against the law to do so. It was punishable by death. But when the king looked up, what he saw standing there in the doorway was this magnificent vision of beauty. And the story goes that he lifted his scepter and he welcomed her and she was able to plead her case before the king and her people were ultimately delivered. Now that is a picture of prayer. That's what you and I have the ability to do. Because you and I are children of God by grace, by adoption, you and I have the privilege of going into the presence of the sovereign of the universe and when we come boldly into his presence, did you ever notice that when we say in the liturgy, the Lord's Prayer, we say, and now as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say? You would think if you're going to go into the presence of the sovereign of the universe, you would go meekly, humbly, but that's not it at all. We go boldly. Why? Because we have a special relationship. And when God sees us, what he sees is not us and all of our sin and all of our corruption, but what he sees is the blessing of His Son, Jesus Christ, His imputed righteousness. And He bids us welcome. And like Esther, we have the privilege of going in and pleading our case before the Father. That is a privilege, my friends. That is a privilege. But that is what prayer is. It is a conversation with God Almighty. It is to have access to the throne room. Now here's something else you have to understand. That prayer, true prayer, is only to the true God. There are millions, perhaps billions of prayers that are uttered every single day that are uttered to other things, other people, than God. People utter prayers all the time to idols, to saints, to any number of things. But true prayer is a prayer that is addressed to the God of the universe. 
the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your finger there in James and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is Jesus saying there? In Matthew chapter 6, he's saying that there are those who like to stand on the corner and pray that they may be heard by others. A newspaper once reported about a prayer that was offered at the beginning of a meeting. They said it was the most eloquent prayer offered, ever offered to a Boston audience. Think about that. It was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. In other words, the newspaper was saying that there was an eloquent prayer, but the real audience was not God. The real audience was the people. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about there. He says they love to stand on the street corners. They love to be heard. But heard by whom? Not heard by God, but heard by other people, that other people might praise them for their eloquence, for their holiness. Simply saying that you are praying, if your prayer is not addressed to God, if you have not entered consciously into the presence of the Almighty, is not true prayer. Now when we say it's got to be a prayer to God, what that means is it's got to be a prayer to the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three persons participate in the hearing of our prayers. They all have a role to play. For example, the Bible teaches us that our prayers should be addressed to God the Father. That's one of the reasons why we sometimes pray to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That is true. But generally speaking, prayers are addressed to God the Father. That's why Jesus said, and when you pray, pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So prayers are addressed to the Father, they are prayed in the name of the Son, which is one of the reasons why we say, in Jesus' name, amen, or in Christ's name, amen. Why is it in Jesus' name? It's in Jesus' name because it's only by His merit, it's only by His righteousness that you and I have the privilege of going into the throne room. Esther could go into the throne room of the king. Why? because she had a privileged relationship. You and I have a privileged relationship with God, but we have that privileged relationship through Jesus Christ. It's not on the basis of anything that we have done. It's not on the basis of our merit, our goodness. It is His imputed righteousness alone. So we have access to the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth, through the Son, that is the righteousness of the Son, and here's the third part, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2, in the Spirit. Now what does that mean? I think most of us understand praying to the Father, praying through the merits of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to do this in the power of the Spirit? Well, this is simply a confession saying that you and I do not know how we ought to pray. I asked the question earlier, how many of you struggle with prayer? And you say, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you ever been in that point when you're in your life where you don't even know what to pray for? I often am at that point in my life. I, I don't know what to pray for. Stephen Bain was um, appointed the Anglican Observer to the United Nations. He was the first appointee from the Church of England to that high post. This was back in the 1960s. And the London newspaper asked him, what he felt like to be appointed to such a high position, the first one ever. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, oh, I feel very much like a mosquito in a nudist camp. <laughs> he said, I know what I ought to do, but I don't know where to begin. <laughs> you ever felt that way? You know what you ought to do, but you don't, you don't even know where to begin. You don't even know what to pray for. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with moans and groans that are too deep for us to utter. So you see, all three 
persons of the Trinity have a role to play in prayer. So your prayer should be addressed to the Father. Recognize that you need the agency of the Holy Spirit to even help you to know what to pray for. And you do this in Jesus' name by His merits and by His grace. Here's something else to remember. Prayer is a privilege for God's people. Prayer, the prayer that is heard, is the prayer of the Christian who has a special relationship with God. Any of you who have children, you know how this works. There are some people that will demand your time. But if you have to choose between your child and somebody else, even a close friend, who is going to get access to you? Your child. Why? Because they have that special relationship. God's children have that special relationship with Him. So true prayer is a privilege, but it is a privilege for God's people. Here's something else we have to keep in mind, and that is all prayer needs to be according to God's will. There is a passage here in James that I think is a little confusing for some people because it seems to imply that if you get enough people together, two or three perhaps, and you pray for something, God is obligated to give it to you. I want you to understand something. God is not obligated to give us anything. And furthermore, if he is our father and we are his children, how many of you know that there are those times when father knows best? Now, as you grow older, you think you know best. But as parents, you do know better than your children what they need. If you, if you give a 10-year-old the freedom to pick his own meal, what do you think he's going to do? Just this past Saturday, we did something that I have not done in many years. We visited the state fair. You want to talk about all sorts and conditions of men. That is the state fair. The human variety of animal was far more interesting than those who were in the barns. I can just tell you that much when I went to there. But of course, one of the reasons you go to the state fair is for the what? The food! And I'll tell you, it's the healthiest diet you'll ever find. Elephant ears, chocolate-covered bananas, fried Oreos. I mean, everything is fried. You could just imagine. Now, let me just tell you something. I have a 13-year-old son, and he said, Dad, can I? I said, look, it's the fair, of course. But after about the third batch of Oreos, I'm thinking to myself, it's a long ride back. You let them choose for themselves, and what are they going to choose? Anything but what's healthy for them. So if you're a responsible parent, you're not going to give them just what they want, just what they ask for. You recognize what's best. You may think you know what is best for you, spiritually, physically, in your life. But if you're acknowledging God to be your Father, and you recognize that he notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky, but he also maintains the rolling of the spheres in their orbits, then it only stands to reason that he probably knows what's best for you better than you do. This is not some sort of bewitched theology where if you get the incantation right, the prayer right, the words right, God is somehow obligated to give you things. And that includes health. It's interesting, James says this, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. That implies that if we just pray, if we just do it right, if we just anoint with oil, if the elders of the church come and do everything right, then God is somehow going to make this happen. You need to understand right off the bat that nobody, nobody is entitled to good health. Nowhere is that true in the Bible. Now, yes, God sometimes does heal. Frequently he heals. And health is certainly a blessing. 
But we all know that the wages of sin is what? Death. Every single person dies, which means at some point or another, you're going to get sick. That's just a fact. So when we pray, we have to pray trusting that God can and sometimes does heal, but there are those times when there is perhaps a greater plan in view. So we trust the Lord to do for us better things than we can ask for or imagine. All prayer should also contain confession. Why? Because we are all sinners. And Martin Luther put it this way. He said, we are simul ustus et peccator, which means at the same time sinners and yet justified. That is to say, we are in a right relationship with God by grace through faith. It is an imputed righteousness. But that doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, you stop sinning. Now, it should mean that sin shouldn't characterize your life, but we still, from time to time, fail. I mean, a few weeks ago, I talked about the taming of the tongue in this class. All right? How well are you doing? <laughs> Is your tongue tamed yet? How many of you are still struggling? How many of you let the tongue back out of the cage and you got to somehow corral it and get it back in there again? If you are, then you know what I'm talking about. We still struggle. We still sin. And that sin creates an impediment. And so when we come into the presence of the Lord, we need to acknowledge that. We need to ask for forgiveness. Repentance is not a one-time thing, folks. All of our life should be repentance. And so confession is a part of prayer. Make it a part of your prayer. Put it on the front end. And when you pray, pray for yourself. But if you're being persecuted, the scripture's clear, pray for your persecutor as well. Now maybe you do that. Maybe you do pray for those who have afflicted you or taken advantage of you or slandered you. But here's my question. What are you praying for when you pray for them? Is it those psalms where you say, Oh, Lord, strike down thine enemy. Grind him into the dust. Is it that kind of a prayer? Or is it the prayer, Lord, turn his heart? Turn her heart. Bring them to repentance. Because we have to remember that that's what we once were. We were enemies of God, is the way Paul describes it. And God loved us, so we pray for others. And that's how James ends this book. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In the end, James says, that's what we should be praying for more than anything else because if you think about it, Sin is really the cause of the lion's share of the misery and the suffering that exists in the world today. And so if you can convert the sinner, you cover a multitude of sins. So as I said, this is a very practical book. Let's just go back very quickly and review how practical it really is. James begins this book in chapter 1 talking about suffering. The problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis called it. Well, how many of us have endured suffering or have known people who have suffered? If you suffer, this is a book for you. James talks about the need to be serious followers of Christ. Fanatics, remember that? Not just sort of casual hangers-on, but people who are serious about the gospel. Well, do you think we need people who are serious about the gospel in 21st century American society today? You better believe it. In Western culture today, if there's one thing that we need more than anything else, it is people who are salt and light. We need to be fanatics. In our zeal for the Lord, James is very clear, we are not to show favorites. 
We're not to look for a church where it's just people like us. We are to go out into the highways and the byways, as Jesus said in the parable, and invite in all sorts and conditions of men. A good place to start perhaps might be the state fair. We are to recognize that actions speak louder than words. It's not enough to stand up and pray on Sundays and pray on your neighbor every other day of the week. Actions speak louder than words. But when you do use words, you need to be careful about the words you use. We've all been taught sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, but we all know it's not true. By God's grace, we have to work at taming our tongues. And when we don't tame our tongues, James goes on to say, in chapter 4, that we need to recognize that the problem is not out there in the world. That's what we want to think. The reason I am the way I am, the reason I'm corrupted, the reason I can't control myself is because of other people or other things. But James says that's not true. The problem is where? The problem is in here. It's in our hearts. We are to remember that we are not God. We are not God in other people's lives. And James says we are not God in our own lives. We are not in control. We are not the masters of our own fate. We are not the captains of our own destiny. We have to remember that we can't place our faith, our trust, our confidence in the things of this earth. Why? Because they eventually will all disappear. All of your riches, he said, have become corroded. Jesus said, store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And finally, when you are facing affliction, when those who are mighty and powerful are out there and they're abusing you because of your faith in Jesus Christ, be patient. Know that God is still in control. Be immovable. Be steadfast. Do not shrink back. Continue to bear witness. And when you think you have no strength left, go boldly into the presence of the king and plead your cause. There could hardly be a more practical book in the Bible than the book of James. Can you imagine how different we would be? I'm not even talking about the parish, but how different we would be. How different the world would look to us if we lived like this. Sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, just tell me what to do. I want to know what I should do. Well, I'm telling you what you should do. Read the book of James. (laughs) Read it. Mark it. Learn it. Inwardly digest it. It's practical advice for practical people. Now we have, and this rarely happens, five minutes. And I know that there were some people with some questions. So I am willing to entertain questions for the remaining five minutes. Somebody's already slipped one up here onto my desk. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. And then if there are any other questions, I'll go ahead and answer them. The question is this. I know that I have a soul and can tell it to bless the Lord, O my soul. But how do I define my soul? How do I explain the soul to myself, my children, and my grandchildren? Well, that's a great question. We talked about this when we were talking about riches because I think I used the parable that Jesus told about the farmer who was the fool, who stored up great goods for himself and said, soul, say to yourself, soul, you have riches stored up for many years. The question is, what is the soul? We hear a great deal about the soul. What is the soul? Well, I'm going to give you a a simple answer and then a more in-depth answer, all right? The soul, simply put, is that part of us which is eternal. 
human beings are unique in that we were created for eternity. We were created for eternity because of all the creatures that God made. We were created in the image of God. So you and I are created for eternity. We are going to exist for eternity in one place or another. Now when we die, we are made up of two parts, body and soul. Now I say two parts, this is where I'm going to get more in depth in just a moment. But we're made of the part that is temporal and that part which is eternal. The temporal part is the body. And while we're living, body and soul are united. When we die, the body goes into the ground. The soul goes to be with the Lord. Until the return of Christ at the end of the age when body and soul shall be reunited and we shall be given a new body. Jesus is the first fruits of this. You'll notice that when Jesus died, his body went into the tomb for three days. But there are some passages, particularly by Peter, that imply to us that Jesus at that point went to the abode of the dead and even preached to those who were in captivity. This is one of the reasons why in the creed for morning prayer we say it, and descended into hell, all right? So it's a conscious state. But when Jesus was resurrected, what happened? He was given a new body. It was a physical body in the sense that it could be seen, it could be touched, still bore the wounds, and yet it was capable of doing things that it was not capable of doing before, passing through bolted and barred doors, going back and forth to heaven, appearing out of nowhere. Well, that's what it's going to be like for us. When you die, you don't cease to exist, and you just don't go into the ground waiting. The body goes into the ground, but the spirit goes to be with the Lord, in the presence of the Lord, until that day when body and soul are reunited and we are given a new body. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the new body. <laughs> All right? A new body. But you have to understand this, and I've said this before, but this is a hard one. Your ultimate destination is not heaven. Heaven is a way station. If you read the grand story in the book of Revelation, God's real plan is a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to get back on track what Adam and Eve got off track. Now, I say that that is a simple answer, and you're probably thinking, it doesn't sound simple to me at all. But, but when I say soul and body, there is another view. That's what's called the dichotomous view, that there are two parts of us. There is the eternal part, the soul, the temporal part, the body. There are some theologians who hold to what is known as the trichotomous view. And what they do is they make a distinction between the spirit and the soul. All right? So we're not soul and body, we're spirit, soul, and body. Now when they make that distinction, and there are some passages in the Old Testament that imply that this is the way it is, the distinction they would make between the soul and the spirit is this. The soul is that part of us that gives us personality. The old Hebrew word is nephesh, and it would imply that there are even animals that are soulish animals. You know, dogs have personality, for example. Cats don't, but dogs have personality. Um, dogs have personality. They're, they're nephesh creatures. They're, they're soulish creatures. How many of you have dogs and know that the dog has a personality? All right. They would say that that's a soulish creature. The spirit, they would say, is that part of us which has God consciousness, which is eternal. All right. So the soul is sort of our personality. The spirit is the eternal part. For those who hold to a dichotomous view, just two views, the soul and the spirit are combined. It's basically the eternal part of us. But the important thing to understand is you are temporal and eternal. And you will live forever in one place or another depending upon your relationship with Christ. Now, how's that? Clear, clear as mud? Okay, good. All right. Any other questions? They dare not ask him anymore. Yes? Rachel, plug your ears. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, prayers to the saints and so forth. I think one of the things that sometimes gets a little confusing um, on the part of Protestants uh, when it comes to how Catholics pray and so forth. Um, 
And this goes to a question that Charlene Ringer asked me that was after Sunday school. So um, I'll try to sort of bring all this together. One of the things that we have to remember about the saints, and incidentally, uh, coming up in November, November 1st is what is known as All Saints Day. The first thing to understand about the saints, from a biblical point of view, I'm not talking about Catholicism or Anglicanism or Orthodoxy or any. You need to understand the biblical notion of a saint. The biblical notion of a saint is not someone who does great things, who achieves great purposes, and thereby is awarded this coveted status of a saint, the status that is reserved only for a select few. The word saint and the word Christian are interchangeable in the New Testament. All right? So if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Isn't that encouraging? Now, I didn't say you were a perfect saint. <laughs> I didn't say you weren't a saint in training, but you are a saint. You are a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. A saint is a Christian. So that's the first thing to understand. What Roman Catholics often do, now I'm, I want to be careful here because there are different views. There's a thing called the treasury of merit and so forth. But what many Catholics mean, let's put it this way, is that when a person dies, they are still very much alive. When your loved one dies and they're in the Lord, they are with the Lord. This is why the New Testament says we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And those who are with the Lord are not disinterested in what's happening down here on earth. They are excited to see what God's unfolding plans in history are. And so many Catholics, when they say, well, I pray to the saints, what they're really saying is they're asking the saints to pray for them in the same way that I ask St. William here to pray for me. The problem with it from an Anglican point of view is that for many people, we don't know the status of a person once they die. Only God knows their heart. And in the medieval period, this was used as sort of friends at court it was given the idea that, that if you had somebody who was really a great saint, then they were much closer to the throne than somebody else, and you might be able to curry favor with them. So as Anglicans, we give thanks for the saints. We really don't pray to the saints. Um, we do pray for the dead. But when I say we pray for the dead, we are not praying to change their status. All right? You cannot. The Bible says it is appointed man once to die, and then there's judgment. So you can't change the status. You can't have chancery masses and all that sort of thing that Martin Luther was upset about. You can't do anything to change the status of a person once they die. Purchase so many years off purgatory or anything like that. You can't do that. But we pray for the dead in the sense that they may grow from strength to strength in the light of God's eternal kingdom. We're, it's our way of remembering the fact that our loved ones, when they go to be with the Lord, are still there. They haven't completely passed from the scene. They're still there. But we are not praying that they can change anything. So I discourage the practice of praying or asking saints, aside from the ones that are here on earth, but are known as the church militant. I discourage asking the saints in the church triumphant, if you will, to pray for us because it gives rise to just misunderstanding and superstition. And that's the main reason why the Protestant reformers condemned it for the most part. They understood, but they also understood that it was susceptible to being abused and misunderstood. It's a great question. Anything else? All right, well, we're going to close with a word of prayer. And what are we going to study next week? I'll let you know when I figure it out. So, <laughs> I think, I think we are probably going to begin a study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which is a great book, an important book, obviously, for all the reasons. There are a couple of books I always like to preach when I am in ministry. It takes me a while to get through it. I'm just going to brace you right now. The last time I taught Romans, it took me four years. So we will teach Romans until we finish it, or you go to glory, or I go to glory. 
or the Lord comes in glory, all right? The other book that I always like to teach is the Gospel of John. That took me six years. So uh, given COVID, I thought we would start off with something simple, something practical, something short. That's what we've done with James. Now we'll take a deep dive into some theology, all right? Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the book of James. It is an extraordinary book. We say that it is a church that is often neglected in the life of the church, perhaps because of Martin Luther's misunderstanding. But it is a practical book. And the Christian life should be practical. It's not just about ethereal theology. It's about living here and now. That's the message of Christianity, that God took on human flesh, real flesh, what we got up with this morning, what some of us washed this morning, what some of us shaved this morning. God took on that flesh and He walked among us. And we are to walk in this world and be a light in the darkness. James shows us how to do that. So we pray, Lord, that this would just be an introduction to this book, that we would begin to take seriously the message of it, apply its principles to our lives, that we may bring others into the knowledge of him whom to know is life everlasting. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.